Hey, Calvary, thanks for joining us today on the Calvary Monterey podcast. Before we dive into Pastor Nate's message, we actually wanted to let you know that Pastor Nate has his own podcast where he talks a little bit deeper about his sermons. So if that's something you'd like to do and to dive deeper in your walk with the Lord and get more insight on Pastor Nate's sermons, it's called the Jesus Famous Podcast, and you can listen to it now wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Here's a quick clip for you to check out of the Jesus Famous Podcast. You failed for, you know, the way that you treated somebody. Mm-hmm. Also, representing your master in heaven and obeying him by going and making it right. I yeah. mean, that speaks volumes, mm-hmm. and that's definitely what the Lord wants. It's not just yeah. a, I got to improve on that next time. Sometimes it's going back to that person that... Yeah you're maybe even a superior too and saying, Hey, you know what? I need to let you know that wasn't right. The way Mm. I treated you, I apologize. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I try not to Mm. treat people that way and please forgive me. I I won't do that in the future. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I think that really represents the Lord. Well, well, there you have it. That's the Jesus famous podcast. So we'd love to have you join us over there as well. If you want to get deeper into your walk with the Lord and dive deeper into Pastor Nate's messages. Without further ado, let's hand it over to Pastor Nate. All right. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys today. If you take out your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter three, Proverbs chapter three. And, uh, If I haven't met you before, my name's Nate. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're doing a little study right now looking at, uh, called Wholehearted Work, looking at the theology of work and career and the workplace. What does God have to say to us about the way that we spend so much of our time and energy? And today we're going to have our last look at this subject together. Although, personally, my hope and prayer is that because I've taught this over the last month, this will kind of ingrain itself in some of my applications for you in just other regular Bible studies that we're doing together uh, as a church. But today we have Josh Dryden with us today. If you welcome him, he's going to read the scripture to us. Josh is uh, serving in our Air Force, as you can tell by his haircut. And uh, he's a great guy, great family. They jumped right into the church when they got here, leading a life group now and involved in our hospitality ministry. And it just seems like every time the doors are open, his family's here. So I really appreciate this guy. So let's read together Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 together. Proverbs 3, starting in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Amen. Great reading voice too. 
Lord, we lift up Scott and his, excuse me, Josh and his family, Lord, to you, and pray, Lord, and ask that you would bless them. This season that they're here in Monterey, we pray that it would be refreshing, Lord, that you'd give him good success in the work of his hands, and Lord, that you'd advance him in his career. And Lord, in praying for him, we pray for everyone in this church who, as a believer, is serving in our armed forces in some way, and we ask, Lord, and pray that you'd make them salt and light. And Lord, that you give them great wisdom in the days that we're in, in serving you in that capacity. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this in your name. And we also, Lord, thank you for your word this morning and ask that you would speak to us from it. These are precious words that many of us know. Some of these passages have, might have even been memorized by some of us, Lord, in times past. And we pray, Lord, that you would take the truth of this passage and apply it into our lives by your spirit today. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray together, amen. Thanks, brother. Well, the promises of the passage that we just read, if you really think about them, they're fairly astounding. If you have your Bibles open, just scan them with me, there are five of them that are mentioned. King Solomon writing this little mini teaching of 12 verses to his son says that five beautiful things will happen in his son's life and in our lives if we live the way that Solomon prescribes in these verses. In verse two, he said, if you live this way, you will have length of days and years of life and peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom. You'll have a shalom over your life. The second blessing or byproduct of living this way is found in verse four. He says, you will get favor, son, and good success in the sight of God and man. The third blessing is found in verse six. You'll get straightened paths. In other words, obstacles will be removed from your life. And the fourth blessing is physical and therapeutic well-being. This is mentioned in verse eight. He said, you'll get healing in your bones and in your flesh, refreshment in your bones. And the fifth and final blessing is found in verse 10, it's prosperity. He said, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. Now, before we do our work on this text, before we start thinking to ourselves, well, this is the Old Testament, this is the Old Testament era, I live in the New Testament Christian era, some of these promises are now spiritual for me today, before doing all, any of that kind of work, shouldn't we just stop and say to ourselves, that life that's described in these 12 verses, that's an appealing life. Those byproducts, those benefits, I think all of them would say, yeah, these are things I would desire to see happen in my life. Wouldn't it be incredible to see these results unfold in our lives and in our workplaces? Underlying peace is what he promised the removal of obstacles, spiritual and emotional health, tangible success in our workplace. Wouldn't we love to see that take place? But at the center of this 12-verse mini-teaching from King Solomon to his son is the key to how he believes these blessings are unlocked in his son's life. He says in verse five, trust in God the Lord with all your heart. 
And do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and he, God, the Lord, he will make straight your paths. The reason why this concept is at the center of this mini 12 verse teaching from Solomon is because he believes that trust is the heartbeat that steadily pumps all the blessings that he mentions throughout our lives. Without a strong heart of trust, with, with a weak trust heartbeat, so to speak, the passage's blessings will not be pushed out to the extremities of our lives. But with a heart of trust, a life of leaning on God's wisdom rather than our, on our own, the blessings that Solomon mentions will flow. Now the word trust that Solomon uses in verse five is a word that means to lie down helpless, face down. Uh, it's the word that would be used to depict a servant waiting for the word or command of their master. Uh, it's the word that would be used to describe a defeated warrior waiting for the command of a conquering general. Where should I go? What should I do? And I think this is a great picture for what it means to trust God. To say, God, I need your voice. I need your direction. I need your insight. I need your guidance. I think a lot of us, when it comes to especially our work, our careers, our futures, we especially need to trust God in the season that we're in today. And I think a lot of us feel like times are changing. Things are shifting all around us. We feel like the future is uncertain for us as a result. You remember back in the 90s, from time to time, you'd hear a knock on your door and it would be, you'd open it up and it would be a salesman, a salesman for the Encyclopedia Britannica. You remember what that, remember that was, what, what that was? For those of you who weren't alive at that time, it was a 37 volume set that you could buy for, I don't know, the cheap price of $1,500 or so, where you could learn about various things. It was an encyclopedia. It was about 1% of the size of Wikipedia, but far higher in quality. <laughs> But in the 90s, things were changing. And so would the job of that encyclopedia door-to-door -door salesman. And I think many of us feel that way, like stuff is going on, things are changing. What does the future hold for my life? This trust for God is required in times like these. Solomon tells his son that we need to trust God at all times and in all our ways, which would include our works. This trust in God understands that there are limits to what we can understand. This trust in God comprehends that the way that God sees things, God's wisdom is incomprehensible. This trust in God agrees when God says in Isaiah 55, verse eight and nine, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This brand of trust agrees with Paul the Apostle when he said in Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth and the riches 
of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments or his decisions and how inscrutable his ways. He said, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? One mature believer described trust for me in a recent conversation I had with him. Experiencing lots of responsibilities and pressures that were weighing down on him in this particular season in his life, he said, I don't really know what's going to happen and I don't know how I'm going to get through it. So each day in my calendar, I write the phrase, I don't know how. And what he meant by that was, I don't know how, but I'm trusting God. I trust that God knows how all these obstacles and issues in my life are going to be worked out. I don't know how. I don't have the understanding. I don't have the answers, but God does. I love that beautiful trust. And this trust is at the center of this passage and all the beautiful blessings that are found inside of it. But rather than just simply say we should trust God more, I think we can look at the text and find specific ways that we can trust God, especially in the way that we work today. I wanna show you four of them today, starting with what Solomon said to his son in verse one through four. First way that the text tells us to trust God in our work is with our character. Number one, with our character. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. The whole mini teaching starts out with this dad talking to his son, and he tells his son in the opening verse, in verse one, he says, don't forget my teaching. Keep my commandments from and in your heart. I think any good parent understands the perspective of this older father right now. I mean, he's just looking at his son who's developing, he's building his worldview, and this wise father is saying, son, I, I'm sharing things with you that I know that they work. I know this is from God. I know this is in his word, and I'm asking you to get these things written upon your heart. I don't know if you know this about the book of Proverbs, but if you were looking for a description of what Proverbs is about, you could say Proverbs is about living life with skill. It's a skillful life. There's living life without skill, and then there's living life with skill. And the book of Proverbs teaches us God's wisdom that he's embedded in the cosmos, which helps us learn how to live a life of skill. Solomon, as a father, is teaching his son, and he says, son, remember these words that I've shared with you. And then in verse three, one of the first things that this father tells his son that he should remember is his character, that he should take care of his character. He said in verse three, don't let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, but instead bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, we don't really talk like that very much these days. I doubt that there's any father in the room this last week that said to his children, I want you to do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, but bind them on your heart and around your neck. That's not really the way that we talk. What is Solomon saying in plain English? Well, he's saying, Son, I want you to remember that it's important for you to be biblically intensely loving 
and biblically intensely faithful throughout your life. You should be this loving and faithful person in your life, including in your work. You should get those attributes deep down within your soul. You should let them be the guiding light to who you are from within. And I think we need to do the same. You see, this is the character that God describes in his word, and here we learn that we must make sure that it is guiding our lives. We must not neglect the character that God describes in the Bible. But here's the thing. Trusting God with our character is often very challenging when we're at work, especially in our modern world. It's tempting for us to think that the character that God wants us to live with, that it works at church, that it works in our family life, that it works in our friendships, but that it does not work at work. We might even go so far as to imagine what it would be like if Jesus took over our jobs for a day. You might imagine that Jesus would be ill-suited for your work. You might imagine Jesus in that big meeting, for instance, where a new project is coming up and there's brainstorming happening and responsibilities and tasks are being delegated. And you know Jesus, he's such a volunteer. He's so loving, he's so kind, and you just kind of could imagine Jesus with a big pile of binders walking out of that meeting because he didn't have the heart to say no or set any boundaries or stand up for himself, so he said yes to everything because he's the servant of all. Or you might imagine Jesus repeatedly getting in trouble with the management because every time he saw a coworker that was sad, he stopped working and he spent two or three hours giving them a personal counseling session and just talking with them and praying with them. And they're like, hey, Jesus, you're really hurting our productivity. You need to get back to work. Or you might imagine Jesus giving away all the profits that the business has earned because, you know, Jesus, he's so generous. He doesn't even like money. He just gives it away. We can't imagine Jesus being strong enough to handle the rigors of our work or life or school. We can't imagine him handling all that life would throw at him. But we have too low a view of Jesus, if that's the case. We forget that the job of the Messiah was filled with thousands of pressures and Jesus managed all of them flawlessly. And before Jesus entered into public ministry, which was so hard, Jesus was the town carpenter in the city or town of Nazareth. Jesus was well acquainted with navigating the pressures of hard work and difficult people and unrealistic expectations. And on top of this, every time in the Bible you read about a heroic worker, you're reading about someone who is living out the spirit of Christ, the nature of Christ, right there on the pages of Scripture. Like, for instance, last week we talked about Joseph in the book of Genesis. Remember him, the youngest of the 12 sons of Israel, through jealousy, his older brothers threw him in a pit, then sold him into slavery. 
And then that slavery ended up getting him at one point imprisoned for a number of years. And while he was in prison, Joseph worked well, he worked hard, he was faithful. And as I mentioned last week, he basically ascended to running the prison, the prisoner running the prison. There came a day though in Genesis chapter 40 where Joseph, as he oversaw the prisoners, he saw two prisoners who had just recently been thrown into the prison. They had, were both workers who used to work for Pharaoh. And the night before, they'd had dreams that were so vivid, they knew they must have a meaning, but they didn't know the interpretation. And so their countenance was sad. And it says that when Joseph walked by them and saw the sad countenance on their faces, he stopped and asked them, what is wrong? Now that led to incredible opportunities for Joseph. That was really the best thing he could have done to advance his career. Because he asked that question, they told him his dreams. When they told him his dreams, God gave him the interpretation of the dreams. And because God gave him the interpretation of the dreams, in short order, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, when he had dreams, would hear about Joseph. And Joseph got an audience with Pharaoh, but he got that audience because of the simple question that he asked, what is wrong? But when he asked that question, he wasn't manipulating he wasn't thinking, this will be really good for my career somehow. He wasn't gaming anyone. He was just living out the spirit of Christ in his life, saying, this is the kind of person that God asks me to be. So I'm going to live out my faith in this way, in this setting. And the Bible is filled with many strong believers who display Christ-like character in their workplaces. Daniel held fast to his integrity when he was far from home and it could have easily cheated on his faith and walk with God. He wouldn't compromise his convictions even for his boss, the most powerful man in the world at that time. And God saw it and blessed him, blessed him for that faithfulness and gave him promotion after promotion. Esther in the Bible stood up for God and his people. She risked her own safety in the process and God rewarded her with increased influence and security. Nehemiah governed according to biblical principles. Paul worked in anonymity to provide for his own needs and all throughout the New Testament, Roman military officers lead with Christ-like sacrifice and care for others. The character that God describes in his word, we're meant to bring it into our workplaces. And it can work in our places of work. But it's all too easy to think that the character God asks of us won't work there. But we must not give in to that temptation. We have to trust him with our character, amen? But the second thing I want you to see is that we also need to trust God with our abilities. We have to trust God with our abilities, our, our talents, our skills, the things we've acquired or learned over time or that we were just born with. We have to trust God with those. And the reason I'm saying that is because in verse seven, Solomon told his son not to be wise in his own eyes, but to instead fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, this is an interesting exhortation because remember I told you what the book of Proverbs is about? It's about 
leading or living life with skill, learning how to live a life of skill. And I think what Solomon knew is that if his son listened to his words, read and heard all this wisdom, applied it in his life and did these things, lived his life in this way, eventually, uh, well, it would look like he knew what he was doing. His life would be successful. Doors would be open. People would want to follow his leadership. Things would be going well because he was living his life according to the good wisdom that his father had given to him. Things would work. But when that happens, or when that happened to his son, Solomon, I think, was concerned that his son would begin to think, I'm the one that did this to myself. I'm the one who is wise. I'm the one who is a good leader. I am the one with the talent. I am the one with the ability. And he would eventually become wise in his own eyes. So Solomon is saying, son, when the skill begins to be applied and the success begins to flow, you're in danger. Because in that place, you might think that the wisdom has come from you but you must still trust God that he's the one that gave you the wisdom and the skill and the ability to do this task. And I think we have to be on guard in the same way. We should not, as we follow God, especially in our workplace, become wise in our own eyes. So as you trust God while you work, make sure you trust him with your abilities. Stay humble and recognize that all those abilities, all that wisdom, all that skill, all that insight, all that work ethic, all that energy, it all came from God. It comes from him. I don't know if you remember the story of Samson and the book of Judges, but it's definitely a cautionary tale that's applicable at this moment in the sermon. God gave Samson massive physical Uh, strength, supernatural strength, so that he could be a special weapon that God would use to defend his people in the Old Testament era. And when they got in trouble with their neighbors and their enemies began to attack them, they could cry out to God and say, God, please protect us. And God would protect them in part by raising up this supernatural warrior named Samson. And Samson would come out, he would knock some heads around for a little bit and the Philistines would grow terrified and there'd be peace for a season. But Samson began to forget that his ability came from God. Over time, because of his self-assurance and his own thought that he was strong himself, one day when the Philistines attacked, Samson arose to defend himself, but the saddest, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, it says, but Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. His self-assurance ended up being his downfall. I think we have to be a people who make sure that we give God credit for our talents and our positions and our opportunities. We could not do what we do without God sustaining our lives watching over our lives, taking care of our lives. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you're feeling pretty good, like, man, things are working out right now. I'm, I'm getting stuff done, and things are clicking, it's happening, and then all of a sudden you get really sick. 
And in like 24 hours, you turn into a big blubbering baby complaining in your bed, all sweaty, and you just, you can't even do anything. It's like, you just realize in that moment, I'm so fragile. I need God. Every breath that he gives me, every day of health that he gives to me, I need to be thankful to him for that, not be wise or strong in my own eyes, but to trust that he has blessed me in this way and I want to be faithful with it. You know, when Jesus taught and spoke quite often, he gave the parable of a master who went away on a long journey, but before he left entrusted various amounts of money to his staff before he departed his household. And his staff, when he was gone, some of them, they invested, they accumulated wealth for the master so that when he returned, he said, well done, good and faithful servant, because they had taken the gifts entrusted to them and they had developed them for the master. And I think one of the lessons that we should learn from that parable from Jesus is that the talents and abilities and skills and wisdom that we have, it's not ours, it's his. And he's entrusted it to us so that we would be faithful with it until the day that he returns. Now this passage also shows us another thing though, not only that we need to trust God with our abilities and with our character, but in verse nine and 10, Solomon tells his son, you need to trust God with your finances. The way he said that is found in verse nine. He said, son, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Now this is the Old Testament that we're reading and they had a very specific way of honoring God with their finances. One thing they would do is that they would give a tenth of their belongings to God. They called it the tithe. They would also, on top of that, give sporadic free will offerings to God, sometimes like a sin offering or a praise offering, a fellowship offering. They would give these to God as well at the tabernacle or temple. And then a third way that they would give or honor God with their finances was in various forms of charity to people who were in need. So they see someone in poverty, they help them. That was a way for them to honor God with their finances. Here in this passage, we get one specific example of how they could honor God with their finances. He said, give God the first fruits of all your produce. That was something that they would do when they got their harvest. Uh, when their land yielded a harvest, they would take the first fruits of that harvest and they would give it to God. It was kind of a way of saying, God, we believe that the rest is coming. We believe that this all belongs to you, but we're giving you the first thank you for allowing us to consume the rest. Now, when we think about this subject, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a major reason that we go to work. We go to work in part so that we can earn money. And money, especially in our work, I think is another significant area that we need to trust God. You know, for a lot of us, for many of you here today, the financial realm is a source of continual stress. You know, you're, you feel a constant weight upon you for it. And I, I know this in part because over the years, I'm pastor here for 15 years now, I'm in my 15th year, I've talked to a lot of married couples. I've never had one married couple who has told me, you know, one of the things we like talking about the most in our marriage is money. We love just talking about money, 
getting into it, your perspective, my perspective, where it's off, like we love that. You know, it's usually, yeah, that's a big pressure in our lives. Two different people seeing things in two different ways, two different styles. We're trying to figure out how to do this together. We feel that pressure. And some of you might be feeling that financial pressure in a stronger way today than ever before in your life. Some of you don't know what you're gonna do for work in the future. Some of you, your job is changing. Some of you have been preparing for your career. You're studying, but you've been forced to study online for a couple of years. Some of you, inflation is killing you. Some of you aren't making enough. Some of you aren't being compensated fairly. There's a lot of factors that can come together to make money a source of discouragement and frustration for a lot of us. And all this discouragement, all this frustration can also lead, I think, to a general feeling of guilt or shame about money. You know, many of us are carrying around this internal embarrassment about how we've handled our finances. You know, we would love to just always be like a spot on Dave Ramsey clone. But the reality is when we think about the decisions we've made, the way we've spent, we don't always feel that we've done what we should. Perhaps we've even heard or said or taught things in church that don't represent God's word correctly. For instance, Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy 6 said, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But do you know how that verse is normally quoted? It's normally quoted as money is a root of all evil. That's not what Paul said. He said it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. It's a very different statement. And many of us, because we've mismanaged money in some way or have these wrong understandings, have regret that beats us up and makes us feel that when things are financially hard in our lives, we're just simply getting what we deserve. Perhaps to remedy our shame, we should know that the Bible never presents money as evil. In one sense, in the Bible, money is always as good or evil as the person holding it. It's what you do with money that's either used for good or used for evil, but it's the person that makes it what it is. But in another sense, money is always good in the Bible in that a monetary system allows us to build society and improve life together. Without a monetary system, without money, we'd all still be bartering and trading for everything that we have and society would be stuck in a lack of development. But for the shame that we might feel, Jesus is inviting us, I think, into a fresh supply of his grace today. Solomon said to his son, honor me with your wealth. And I think Jesus is saying to us today, though you've failed at times, though you haven't done this right at times, enter into my grace today and begin afresh right now. So how can we enter into this grace and this restart with Jesus if we need it? Well, first we can begin by using our money well. Uh, John Wesley, the famous 18th century preacher, he gave a message that is still quoted quite often today about money. And in it, 
one of the things he said was that in the New Testament, the Christian perspective about money is that the Christian should earn all they can, save all they can, and give all they can. I think that's great counsel and advice from God's word through John Wesley. And in order to do that, you kind of have to have a plan. So one of the things I would say is that you should make a plan, or here's that dreaded word so many don't like, a budget for how you will spend, how you will save, and how you will give. You gotta tell your money where it's going to go. Second, I think we can enter into this fresh start by beginning to work for God first. I've been trying to develop this as we've been thinking about work in this series, trying to help us instead of saying, I go to work to pay the bills. I go to work to make money. I go to work to do these things, but it has nothing to do with my sanctification. It has nothing to do with my love for God. It has nothing to do with my love for neighbor. It has nothing to do with these things. Instead, I'm trying to replace that perspective with, no, God is interested in my work. God wants me to live out his reign and kingdom in my workplace. It's a great way for me to love others by taking care of my own needs, the needs of my family, the needs of my coworkers, and the needs of my society. It's a great way for me to be sanctified and to grow. God is interested in my work. So I'm trying to replace the I'm doing it for money with I'm doing this for God. So hopefully if we can get that in the first place, then money fits into its secondary slot where it belongs. Thirdly, we can enter into this fresh start by practicing the spiritual discipline of generosity. Christians in the New Testament are called to use their money to support gospel work, all the way from their local church to foreign soil. And we're also called to help needs that we're exposed to throughout life in the lives of other people. And when we honor God with our wealth this way, we gain power over money and the false sense of security that it gives to us. So often we think that it's money that makes us safe. When you begin thinking that way, you need to give a little bit of it away and see how easily you survive without it. And fourth, and finally, we can practice the secret of contentment in this fresh start. Paul the Apostle said it this way. He said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, Philippians 4.11. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's Paul the Apostle saying, I needed God's help when I was in need, but I needed God's help just as much when I was abounding. I needed God's help when I was completely and totally supplied, just like I needed God's help when I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. And you might say to yourself, man, it's, it's easy to trust God when the bank account is full, but how often have we known people who in times of success forgot God? Paul learned how to be content with what he had in both conditions. So we got to be a people who trust God with our finances. But let's wrap it up today with one last thing that Solomon tells his son to trust God in, in this little mini teaching. He says, 
Finally, and lastly, in verse 11 and 12, he tells his son, you gotta trust God when he disciplines you. This might not be the thing that we think of right off the bat, but look at verse 11 and 12. He said to his son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his corrective voice, his reproof. For the Lord reproves those whom he loves like a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, when we, at the beginning of this little series, we're looking at the Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28 passage. And from it, trying to learn why does work matter to God? One of the things that we thought about is that work matters because it's a major source of sanctification. What that means is, It's a major place where God grows us and changes us. The challenges that we experience at work, the frustrations that we experience at work, the other people we gotta interact with at work that we cannot avoid at work, all of that is designed to grow us up into Christ-likeness. And God will often use our workplaces for this disciplinary thing that Solomon is talking about in this passage. Proverbs says it this way, but Hebrews 12 builds on this quotation by saying in Hebrews 12 verse 10 that God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So in our workplace, God might even discipline us through our work so that we become more holy like God. And when this comes into our lives, what Solomon says to his son is that we should not despise this corrective work of God. You know, we all know that we're going to make mistakes in our work. Sometimes we're going to bring our sins and our faults, our imperfections into the workplace. We're gonna all have a bad day at work. We'll all have things we need to apologize for at work. We'll fail others, we'll fail ourselves in our work. We won't always come to work with the best motives and the best intentions. We won't always be a beacon beacon of light, of representation of Jesus in the workplace. And as a loving father who delights in us, our father God will faithfully deal with us in those moments. He'll show us ways we haven't trusted him. And he might even allow us to take the consequences of our actions for a while as part of his discipline. But this discipline leads to healing. Hebrews 12 goes on to say, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we need to be a people who trust God even when disciplined in and by our work because God is doing a beautiful work of training in our lives through it. Now, I hope this whole passage has helped encourage you or flesh out for you what it looks like to trust God. There is that statement that many of us know at the center of it, that we should trust God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that we've got to be people who lean upon God. We lean not on our own understanding in every way we acknowledge him. We've got to be a people who do that, but here we've gotten specifics on how to do it with our character, our abilities, our finances, and even when God disciplines us. My hope and prayer as we've gone through this series is that we would be a people who bring God to work with us and that we trust God with our work more than we ever have. But as I wrap up this teaching and this series, I just wanna say that if we're honest, I think we often struggle to trust God with our work. 
Sometimes we let our Christian character or our Christian convictions slip, maybe because we think they won't work there, or maybe we're just embarrassed and we want to fit in with everybody else. Sometimes we're filled with pride. We begin thinking that we have the wisdom and the knowledge and the talents, that they come from us rather than from God, and that he should have no say in our lives there. Sometimes we fail to honor God with our finances. We get such strong feelings of security from them and importance from them that sometimes we don't honor him the way we should. And sometimes we despise God's disciplinary training. We wish that he would just leave us alone. Stop trying to sanctify me, just let me be. I think if we're honest, there are times we just don't trust God with our work and we take matters into our own hands and we do act purely out of our own understanding. But I wanna say as I wrap up this teaching and this series that because we know these things about ourselves, this should give us more reason than ever to rejoice in Jesus. You see, it's not too hard to see Jesus in this passage. You might have read Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 and thought to yourself like, I'm kinda of doing one of these I'm kind of doing two of these. I struggle with three or four of these, but Jesus killed it in every single one of these areas. I mean, the book of Proverbs is written from a father to a son, a king to a future king. And that's exactly what Jesus was and is. Through the cross, through obedience to his father's word, he became the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He always and exclusively did that which pleased his father. Jesus did everything that this passage demands. He trusted the father by remembering all his commandments and writing them upon his heart. Remember Jesus in the wilderness meditating on Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8 for 40 days. Some of us are like, I don't even have time to read the Bible. Jesus is out there in the wilderness for 40 days meditating on three chapters of Deuteronomy. You're like, someday I'll get around to Deuteronomy. Jesus was in it. He trusted his father by allowing steadfast love and faithfulness to guide him, just like verse three says. He trusted his father by leaning on God for his energy and strength to accomplish his work, like in verse seven. He even trusted his father with his finances. He paid the temple tax and he trusted his father with the first of billions of disciples, the first fruits of his disciples. And he trusted the father enough not to despise the Lord's discipline and reproof when it rained down upon him on our behalf on the cross. All this is encouraging to us not just because Jesus did these things, but Jesus also acquired all the blessings that we considered at the top of this teaching. He acquired length of days, years of life and peace, like verse two said. He found favor and good success forever before God and man, like verse four said. He got healing in his flesh and refreshment in his bones when he rose from the dead, like verse eight says. And he entered back into glory, which is a place of plenty, bursting with wine, like verse 10 says. Jesus said that he'll drink wine anew with us in his Father's kingdom. And when Jesus returns, like verse 
6 says his paths will be straightened for him and his kingdom will come in full glory. And here's the beautiful kicker for us as we wrap this up. When we trust in Jesus, we acquire his position and his inheritance. The father looks at us and he doesn't see rebellious children. He looks at us and he sees his only begotten son who did every single thing that the word demanded of him. So no matter the quality of our work, no matter whether tomorrow you go in and have a great day at work where you're highly productive representing Jesus or a day where there's things at the end of the day that you say, I think I'm gonna have to apologize for some things on Tuesday. No matter what your work is like, you have to know that your work can never fully save you or redeem you, and that it's only through Christ's work that we can be delivered. Because of his work, we enter into the greatest unearned blessings of all time. Unearned by us, but earned by Jesus and his perfect work upon the cross, who trusted his father and his father's words all the way to death on the cross for us. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.